Chapter 5 of The Old Coast Road from Boston to Plymouth by Agnes Edwards. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Ecclesiastical Hingham. Should you walk along the highway from Quincy to Hingham on a Sunday morning, you would be passed by many automobiles, for the Old Coast Road is now one of the great pleasure highways of New England. Many of the cars are moderately priced affairs. The tonneau, well filled with children of miscellaneous ages and enlivened by a family dog or two, for this is the way that the average American household spends its modern Sabbath holiday. Now and then a limousine, exquisite in workmanship within and without, driven by a chauffeur in livery and tenanted by a single, languid occupant, rolls noiselessly past. A strange procession, indeed, for a road originally marked by the moccasined feet of Indians and widened gradually by the toilsome journeyings of rough colonial carts and coaches. It is difficult to say which feature of the steadily moving travel would most forcibly strike the original Puritan settlers of the town. The fact that even the common man, the poor man, could own such a vehicle of speed and ease, or the fact that America, such a short time ago a wilderness, could produce, not as the finest flower of its tree of evolution, but certainly as its most exotic, the plutocrat who lives in a palace with fifty servants to do his bidding, and the fine lady whose sole exercise of her mental and physical functions consists in allowing her maid to dress her. Yes, New England has changed amazingly in the revolutions of three centuries, and here, under the shadow of this square, plain building, Hingham's old ship church, while we pause to watch the Sunday pageant of 1920, we can most easily call back the Sabbath rites and the ideals which created those rites three centuries ago. It is the year of 1681. This wooden meeting house with a truncated pyramidal roof and belfry to serve as a lookout station has just been built, a stage ahead architecturally of the log meeting house with clay-filled chinks, thatched roof, oiled papered windows, earthen floor and a stage behind the charming steeple style made popular by Sir Christopher Wren and now multiplied in countless graceful examples all over New England. The old ship is entirely unconscious of the distinction which is awaiting it, the distinction of being the oldest house for public worship in the United States which still stands on its original site and which is still used for its original purpose. In the year 1681 it is merely the new meeting house of the little hamlet of Hingham. The people are very proud of their new building. The timbers have been hewn with a broad axe out of solid white pine. The marks are still visible, particularly in those rafters of the roof open to the attic. The belfry is precisely in the center of the four-sided pitched roof. To be sure, this necessitates ringing the bell from one of the pews, but a little later the bell ringer will stand above and through a pane of glass let into the ceiling he will be able to see when the minister enters the pulpit. The original backless benches were replaced by box pews with narrow seats like shelves hung on hinges around three sides, but part of the original pulpit remains and a few of the box pews. In 1681 the interior, like the exterior, is sternly bare. No paint, no decorations, no colored windows, no organ, or anything which could even remotely suggest the color, the beauty, the formalism of the churches of England. The unceilinged roof shows the rafters whose arched timbers remind one that ship's carpenters have built this house of God.
This, then, is the meeting house of 1681. What of the services conducted there? In the first place, they are well attended, and why not, since in 1635 the general court decreed that no dwelling should be placed more than half a mile from the meeting house of any new plantation, thus eliminating the excuse of too great distance. Every one is expected, nay, commanded, to come to church. In fact, after the tolling of the last bell, the houses may all be searched. Each ten families is under an inspector, if there is any question of delinquents hiding in them. And so, in twos and threes, often the man trudging ahead with his gun, and the woman carrying her baby while the smaller children cling to her skirts, sometimes man and woman and a child or two on horseback, no matter how wild the storm, how swollen the streams, how deep the whirling snow, they all come to church, old folk and infants, as well as adults and children. The congregation either waits for the minister and his wife outside the door, or stands until he has entered the pulpit. Once inside, they are seated with the most meticulous exactness, according to rank, age, sex, and wealth. The small boys are separated from their families and kept in order by tithing men, who allow no wandering eyes or whispered words. The deacons are in the four seats. The elderly people are sometimes given chairs at the end of the pews, and the slaves and Indians are in the rear. To seat oneself in the wrong pew is an offense punishable by a fine. Here is the church, and here are the people, as the old rhyme has it. What, then, of the services? That they are interminable, we know. The tithing man or clerk may turn the brass-bound hourglass by the side of the pulpit two and three times during the sermon, and once or twice during the prayer. Interminable, and also, to the modern Sunday observer, unendurable. How many of us of this softer age can contemplate without a shiver the vision of people sitting hour after hour in an absolutely unheated building. The old ship was not heated until 1822. The only relief from the chill and stiffness comes during the prayer when the congregation stands. Kneeling, of course, would savor too strongly of idolatry and the Church of Rome. They stand, too, while the psalms and hymns are limed out, and as they sing them, very uncertainly and very incorrectly. This performance alone sometimes takes an hour, as there is no organ, nor notes, and only a few copies of the Bay Psalm Book, of which, by the way, a copy now would be worth many times its weight in gold. After the morning service, there is a noon intermission, in which the half-frozen congregation stirs around, eats cold luncheons brought in baskets, and then returns to the next session. One must not for an instant, however, consider these noon hours as recreational, there is no idle talk or play. The sermon is discussed, and the children forbidden to romp or laugh. One sometimes wonders how the little things had any impulse to laugh in such an abysmal atmosphere, but apparently the Puritan boys and girls were entirely normal and even wholesomely mischievous, as proved by the constantly required services of the tithing man. These external trappings of the service sound depressing enough, but if the message received within these chilly walls is cheering, Maybe we can forget or ignore the physical discomforts. But is the message cheering? Hell, damnation, eternal tortures, painful theological hair-splittings, harrowing self-examinations, and humiliating public confessions. This is what they gather on the narrow wooden benches to listen to hour after hour, searching their souls for sin with an almost frenzied eagerness. 
and yet forlorn and tedious as the bleak service appears to us there is no doubt that these stern-faced men and women wrenched an almost mystical inspiration from it that a weird fascination emanated from this morbid dwelling on sin and punishment appealing to the emotions quite as vividly although through a different channel as the most elaborate ceremonial when the soul is wrought to a certain pitch each hardship is merely an added opportunity to prove its faith it was this high pitch attained and sustained by our puritan fathers which produced a dramatic and sometimes terrible blend of personality it has become the modern fashion somewhat to belittle puritanism it is easy to emphasize its absurdities to ridicule the almost fanatical fervor which goaded men to harshness and inconsistency the fact remains that a tremendous selective force was needed to tear the puritans away from the mother church and the mother country and fortify them in their struggle in a new land it was religious zeal which furnished this motive power different implements and differently directed force are needed to extract the diamond from the earth from the implements and force needed to polish and cut same diamond so different phases of religious development are called forth by progressive phases of development it has been said about the new england conscience it fostered a condition of life and type of character doubtless never again possible in the world's history having done its work having founded soundly and peopled strongly an exceptional region the new england conscience had no further necessity for being those whom it now tortures with its hot pincers of doubt and self-reproach are sacrificed to a cause long since won the puritans themselves grew away from many of their excessive severities but as they gained bodily strength from their conflict with the elements so they gained a certain moral stamina by their self-imposed religious observance and this moral stamina has marked new england ever since and marked her to her glory one cannot speak of hingham churches indeed one cannot speak of hingham without admiring mention of the new north church this building of exquisite proportions and finish within and without built by bullfinch in eighteen o six is one of the most flawless examples of its type on the south shore you will appreciate the cream-colored paint the buff walls the quaint box pews of oiled wood with handrails gleaming from the touch of many generations with wooden buttons and protruding hinges proclaiming an ancient fashion but the unique feature of the new north church is its slave galleries these two small galleries between the roof and the choir loft held for thirty years in diminishing numbers negroes and indians the last occupant was a black lucretia who after being freed was invited to sit downstairs with her master and mistress which she did and which she continued to do until her death not so very long ago hingham its main street alas for the original name of bachelor's row arched by a double row of superb elms on either side is incalculably rich in old houses old traditions old families even motoring through too quickly as motorists must one cannot help being struck by the substantial dignity of the place by the well-kept prosperity of the houses large and small which fringe the fine old highway ever since the days when the three mrs barker kept loyal to king george the fourth claiming the king as their liege lord fifty years after the declaration of independence the town has preserved a cranford-like charm and why not 
when the very house is still handsomely preserved where the nameless nobleman francis le baron was concealed between the floors and as we are told in miss austin's novel very properly capped the climax by marrying his brave little protector molly wilder why not when the lincoln family ancestors of abraham has been identified with the town since its settlement the house of major general benjamin lincoln who received the sword of cornwallis at yorktown is still occupied by his descendants its neat fence many windows two chimneys and its two stories and a half proclaiming it a dwelling of repute nearby descendants of samuel lincoln the ancestor of abraham occupy part of another roomy ancient homestead the wampatuck club named after the indian chief who granted the original deeds of the town has found quarters in an extremely interesting house dating from 1680 in the spacious living room are seventeen panels on the walls and in the doors painted with charming old-fashioned skill by john hazlitt the brother of the english essayist the rev daniel shute house built in seventeen forty six is practically intact with its panelled rooms and a wallpaper a hundred years old hingham's famous elms shade the house where parson ebenezer gay lived out his long pastorate of sixty-nine years and nine months and the garrison house built before sixteen forty sheltered in its prime nine generations of the same family the rainbow roof house so called from the delicious curve in its roof is one of hingham's prettiest two hundred year old cottages and miss susan b willard's cottage is one of the oldest in the united states derby academy founded almost two centuries and a half ago by madame derby still maintains its social and scholarly prestige through all the educational turmoil of the twentieth century one likes to associate hingham with massachusetts staunch and sturdy war governor for it was here that john albion andrew who proved himself so truly one of our great men during the civil war courted eliza jones hersey and here that the happy years of their early married life were spent later another governor john d long was for many years a mighty figure in the town with its ancient churches and institutions its pensive graveyards and lovely elms its ancestral homes and hidden gardens hingham typifies what is quaintest and best in new england towns possibly the dappling of the elms possibly the shadow of the old ship's church is a bit deeper here than in other south shore towns however it may seem to its inhabitants to the stranger everything in hingham is tinctured by the remembrance of the stern old ecclesiasticism even the number of historic forts seems a proper part of those righteous days for when did religion and warfare not go hand in hand during the trouble with king philip the town had three forts one at fort hill one at the cemetery and one on the plain about a mile from the harbor and the sites may still be identified not that hingham history is exclusively religious or martial her little harbor once held seventy sail of fishing vessels and between eighteen fifteen and eighteen twenty six one hundred sixty five thousand barrels of mackerel were landed on their salty decks for fifty years between eighteen eleven and eighteen sixty the rapid sailed as a packet between this town and boston making the trip on one memorable occasion in sixty-seven minutes 
we read that the, in the war of 1812, she was carried up the Weymouth River and covered masts and hull with green bushes so that the marauding British cruisers might not find her. And as we read, we find ourselves remembering that camouflage is new only in name. How entirely fitting it seems that a town of such venerable houses and venerable legends should be presided over by a church which is the oldest of its kind in the country. Hingham Changes There is a Roman Catholic church in the very heart of that one-time Puritan stronghold. The New North is Unitarian, and Episcopalians, Baptists, and Second Adventists have settled down comfortably where once they would have been run out of town. Poor old Puritans! How grieved and scandalized they would be to stand as we are standing now and watch the procession of passing automobilists. Would it seem all lost to them, we wonder, the religious ideal for which they struggled, or would they realize that their sowing had brought forth richer fruit than they could guess? It has all changed since Puritan days, and yet, perhaps, in no other place in New England does the hand of the past lie so visibly upon the community. You cannot lift your eyes, but they rest upon some building raised two centuries and more ago. The shade which ripples under your feet is cast by elms planted by that very hand of the past. Even your voice repeats the word which those old patriarchs, well-versed in biblical lore, chose for their neighborhood names. Accord Pond and Glad Tidings Plain might have been lifted from some pilgrim's progress, while the nearby Sea of Galilee and Jerusalem Road are from the good book itself. Which way to Egypt? Is this an echo from that time when the Bible was the cornerstone of church and state, of home and school? What's the best road to Jericho Beach? Surely it is some grave-faced shade who calls, or it is a peal from the chimes in the memorial bell tower, chimes reminiscent of Old Hingham in England? No, it is only the shouted question of the motorist, gay and prosperous, flying on his Sunday holiday through ancient Hingham town. End of chapter 5